Well, this morning will be just a little different. I had another sermon on marriage ready when a topic I consider very serious uh, to address surface. So we'll deal with that. When we first do, you might start wondering, hey, Padre, where are you going with all this? So just hang on. It'll be apparent shortly. Then after that, we'll, we'll consider a completely unrelated topic. So it's sort of two for one, two little short uh, uh, sermonettes, I guess you'd call them. So the first topic... I'll read excerpts from three articles and then make comments at the end. So that's what we'll start. <clears throat> First excerpt is from CNETnews.com. It's Monday, December 4, 2006. The article is entitled, FBI Taps Cell Phone Mic as Eavesdropping Tool. Quote, The FBI appears to have begun using a novel form of electronic surveillance in criminal investigations remotely activating a mobile phone's microphone and using it to eavesdrop on nearby conversations. The technique is called a roving bug and was approved by top U.S. Department of Justice officials for use against members of a New York organized crime family who are wary of conventional surveillance techniques such as tailing a suspect or wiretapping him. Cell phones owned by two alleged mobsters were used by the FBI to listen in on nearby conversations. The U.S. Commerce Department's security office warns that a cellular telephone can be turned into a microphone and transmitter for the purpose of listening to conversations in the vicinity of the phone. Mobile providers can remotely install a piece of software onto any handset without the owner's knowledge, which will activate the microphone even when its owner is not making a call, which will function whether the phone is on or off. They can be remotely accessed and made to transmit room audio all the time without having physical access to the phone. If a phone has, in fact, been modified to act as a bug, the only way to counteract that is to either have a bug sweeper follow you around 24-7 or to peel the battery off the phone. Security-conscious corporate executives routinely remove the batteries from their cell phones. A BBC article from 2004 reported that intelligence agencies routinely employ the remote activation method. A mobile sitting on the desk of a politician or businessman can act as a powerful, undetectable bug, the article said, enabling them to be activated to pick up sounds even when the receiver is down. Close quote. So the first point is that unless a battery is removed, a cell phone, whether it's turned on or switched off, can be used as a bug to transmit room audio at all times. Second excerpt, front page magazine, February 22, 2006. The article is entitled, Clinton's Other Domestic Spying Program. Quote, in 1994, <coughs> excuse me, Clinton Administration Attorney General Janet Reno launched infiltrators, wiretaps, mail monitoring, and a wide range of other spying activities and a massive coordinated effort that included the FBI, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, U.S. Postal Inspectors, the U.S. Marshals Service, and other federal and local law enforcement agencies. President Bill Clinton had acted decisively to fight what he and First Lady Hillary Clinton deemed the most dangerous terrorist threat facing America. Dot, dot, dot. This huge Clinton surveillance scheme was VAPCOM, the Violence Against Abortion Providers Task Force. According to the U.S. Justice Department, VAPCOM was charged with determining whether there was a nationwide conspiracy to commit acts of violence against reproductive health care providers. The more than 900 targets of all this surveillance included the Christian Coalition, Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, Women's Coalition for Life, Feminists for Life, Americans United for Life, the 600,000-member Concerned Women for America, the National Rifle Association, the American Life League, the National Conference of Catholic Bishops, 
and even then Roman Catholic Cardinal of New York, John O'Connor. Close quote. So the second point that is in the recent past, people just like us have actually been targeted as potential terrorists and placed under surveillance by our government. And as I'm saying this, I'm looking at somebody that files were pulled in the Filegate scandal. So we have someone sitting right here with us for sure. Third and final excerpt from the New York Times, August 4th, 1996. This is the New York Times. Article is entitled, Despite Protests, Lawyers Hear Recording of Confession to a Priest. Quote, Over the protests of a Roman Catholic civil rights group and civil libertarians, an Oregon judge has allowed two defense lawyers to listen to a tape of their client's confession to a Catholic priest. The judge let two lawyers for Conan Wayne Hale, a 20-year-old suspect in a triple homicide, listen to the tape of Mr. Hale confessing to the Reverend Tim Mokaitis as the two men spoke in April through a partition in the Lane County Jail in Eugene. Lane County District Attorney, who ordered the taping, apologized, saying the taping was legal and ethical, but simply not right. Now, I have to pause on that for a second, because that's just so unbelievable to me. So it, when you say it's ethical, but not right, you're saying it's ethical, but it's wrong. You're saying it's right, but it's wrong. That's what ethical means. This is an official of our government. It's ethical, but wrong. Is that like the answer is yes, but it's no. It's left, but it's right. It's day, but it's night. It's up, but it's down. It's black, but it's white. I mean, this, what are we talking about here? Talk about newspeak. Why wait for 1984 when you can have it now and avoid the rush? He said that four people, two deputy district attorneys, a deputy sheriff, and a secretary, had already listened to the tape, but he promised that his office would seal it and not use it in prosecuting Mr. Hale. Pause again. Do they tape defense lawyers talking when they, when they have counsel in there, when they're talking through that? I've been in these jails where you're, where you're hearing a confession through the screen. Are they taping the defense lawyers in there? You can bet they'd be screaming like wounded saxophones if there was something like that going on. But they're going to tape us? I'm sorry, I'm getting spun up. Mr. Hale's, all right, it says, Mr. Hale's main defense lawyer wanted to know what prosecutors had learned from the tape so she could determine what, if anything, she needed to do about the tape's contents. She is listening to the tape with another defense lawyer, but she's forbidden by court order to discuss its contents and will say only that she may use the tape as she defends Mr. Hale at his trial scheduled for next July. Close quote. So right there we have at least six people listening to a sacramental confession. It's been transcribed, it's on tape, and it's in the, the court's hands. The third point here, anyway, is right here in our beloved country, the authorities have already admitted to taping a sacramental confession. A person under government surveillance has actually had a sacramental confession, quote, legally and ethically taped, close quote, by the authorities. Conclusions. Given that even without physical access, our cell phones can be turned into bugs, and made to transmit room audio all the time unless the battery is pulled off the phone. And given that in the previous administration, at least, people like us were under government surveillance simply for being serious pro-life Catholics and seeing that a sacramental confession has already been legally and ethically recorded right here in these United States, and given the fact that we hear confessions we don't have a little sign up there saying, excuse me, if you're an organized crime, if you're a murderer, you know, here's the things we're not going to hear. We hear anybody's confession that comes here. That's why God put priests in the world. 
I don't care what you've been up to as long as you stop doing it. That's my job is to defend God's right. I don't care if you're a mobster. That's, that's none of my business. My business is to try to help you get to heaven. It doesn't matter. So, most importantly, given that we priests have to be prepared to die in defense of the seal of confessional, it seems to me there are two common sense choices for anyone with a cell phone who's going to confession, whether here or somewhere else. If you've got a cell phone, the first obvious choice, don't bring it into the confessional. Leave it on the ledge back there by the window. Leave it out in your car. Leave it in your pew. Leave it anywhere. But don't bring cell phones into the confessional. Don't do that. Even if you don't care, we do. Don't bring a cell phone into the confessional. That's the first obvious choice. Or the second obvious choice is gut the thing out. Take the battery out of it. The only case in which a cell phone should go into any confessional is if the battery has already been stripped out of it, okay? This could easily... Well, anyway, I've been calling priests around the country for about the past week since I found out about it. Every single one I've told about this is very concerned. Very concerned, okay? This could easily become a, a, a salvation issue for us on our side of the screen, okay? So in order to protect the sacramental form, every penitent with a cell phone has to either not bring it in or gut it out before it goes in there, Okay? No cell phones in the confessional. We live in really strange times, and we just have to be start recognizing that. No cell phones in the second confessional. End of the first topic. Shift gears. <clears throat> second topic. Three years ago, I had occasion to speak with an exorcist who told me about this possessed person that he'd been working with. This person, the victim, had been ritualistically abused since infancy. He grew up in a a family of, of Satanists. And he's possessed, and the problem was he couldn't be delivered until he had forgiven everyone involved in this abuse, which is unspeakable. We're not going to talk about that. And as he's telling me this, I said, you know, Father, that sort of forgiveness in the face of years of this kind of torture and abuse is, humanly speaking, completely impossible. It would take a miracle of grace for someone to be able to forgive people that have committed those kind of acts against him. A real miracle of grace, and I'm using the word in the proper sense. And a miracle of grace is greater than a physical miracle. A physical miracle is something like raising somebody from the dead. That's lower than this. A miracle of grace, okay? And actually, you're right. And you know how that's going to come about? And I said, no, I sure don't. I don't. And then he told me. He told me how this possessed person would be able to forgive his tortures. Before we get into that, I'll tell you the ending right now. Within a year, it happened. Within a year, this man could actually forgive him. He was delivered from the devils. But first, before he could be delivered from the devils, he had to be delivered from the pain and anger, hatred, the rage, all these feelings that he had first. And he was within a year. It's a miracle of grace. Before I tell you how that worked, how this tormented soul could forgive these people that tortured him from infancy, I'm going to tell you why that might be important to each one of us who didn't hopefully grow up in those same kind of circumstances. In our pursuit of holiness, we have to go to confession to get our sins forgiven. That's a given, okay? But we also have to get rid of what St. Thomas calls the remnants of sin, the remnants of sin. We don't have the time to get into all the details of what that means right now. Just for today, think of the remnants of sins. This will work as wounds. They're burdens. They're problem areas in our character, 
in our personalities, which are sources of sinful tendencies and troubles in our life that remain, even after sin has, after sin has been forgiven. And we can have them from people committing serious sins against us because of our reaction to them. Anyway, they're sort of, think of them like a spiritual ditch that's, that's inside of us that we can keep falling into. Okay, unless we fill it in, we're going to keep falling into it. So the remnants of sin, by the way, are one of the reasons so many people that are saved have to go to purgatory first. Because remnants of sin have to be worked out before someone can go into heaven. So these are spiritual, just think of them as wounds. Like I say, we're not going to get into all the details right now because we're going to talk about how to get rid of them, not what all they are. Okay? All right, so they're wounds. These, although this case that we're talking about where a guy's possessed and has to forgive people who have tortured him, that's the extreme. In each one of us, remnants of sin are actually standing in the way of our holiness. If this prayer technique can work for possessed man who's literally richly abused from infancy, then it can work for anyone here that is struggling. Struggling not necessarily with a terrible event from the past, although it will work for that, just like with him, but struggling with our particular fault. So it's pliable over the board. We already know the ending. It worked. So how was this possessed man able to forgive everyone involved in tormenting? It's all based on the reality that our Lord comes to make all things new. Our Lord comes to make all things new. The priest told me how it worked. He said, I have to get this man to turn over to our Lord in prayer his whole life, to specifically invite his Lord into his life and ask his Lord, the Lord to take charge of his whole life from infancy to right now, to specifically invite him into every one of the painful events that comes to his memory. These memories, his disordered imagination, his angry or hatred, whatever kind of feelings he's got going on, all these horrible events to specifically ask our Lord to be present in him because he's outside time in that sense and tell our Lord, Lord Jesus, I can't handle this, but you can. I can't forgive these people, but you can. You take charge. You heal me. Heal my disordered passions. Heal all these memories. Take charge of this and heal me. The exorcist told me as long as the man was faithful to this kind of prayer and kept inviting our Lord in, kept turning over these wounded areas and painful memories and events and memories and all these things that were haunting him and asked our Lord to take charge of those and heal them, over time our Lord would rearrange the man's interior life. Our Lord would take control and ultimately our Lord would give him the power to forgive his persecutors. And at that point, the exorcisms would be successful. And as we've seen... It already happened. It took less than a year in that case. Somebody that's been involved in something really traumatic, involved in abortion, a disordered sexuality, anything, it doesn't matter. Somebody that has a problem with porn, all these different things. Asking our Lord, I'm going to turn that part of my personality over to you. The gambling, whatever it might be. Anybody that has a disorder. It doesn't have to be major. It can be minor, too. Whatever we're struggling with, okay? I'm not just up here telling you this because I couldn't think of anything else to say. I've got a lot to say. I've been telling people about this for three years. I've seen this work over and over and over again. I'll grant you nothing quite as dramatic as the story I just told you, but I've seen our Lord heal some terrible, terrible wounds I've seen our Lord give peace of soul, true peace of soul and light and life and love where there was nothing but anger and pain. I've seen it happen. See, he's alive. 
He's alive. He loves us. That's why he became a man. He loves us. He came to heal the sick. He came to make all things new. He loves us and he's alive.